Denise Riley is a poet, an essayist, and a philosopher. In all her work, questioning and interrogating politics, history, grief, feminism, and so much more. She's impossible, really, I have to say, to classify, so I'll stop trying and welcome now to the stage Denise Riley and her detour. Denise. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, and thank you for being here in this wonderful building, which I've never seen before, rather like being in Shakespeare's globe, but crossed with a Finnish sauna. Um, <laughs> difficult to, for me to follow with my own voice. Those very beautiful minutes of the use of the sung voice that I've just heard. So I hope that um, you will bear with me just holding forth from my notes for about half an hour or 35 minutes or so. And then after that, I think there's be, there going to be some um, question time. Um, my talk under the general rubric of maps is called detour. And the particular detour that I have in mind is a kind of diversion or looping away from the familiar chronological flow of lived time and into an experience of stopped time, a kind of temporal surprise which may follow on from a sudden bereavement. It's a detour into a feeling of non-time, an experience of being lifted, so to speak, clean off the temporal map. And of course, it's also a detail from the fam familiar layout of those rather well-worn, sequential, quote-unquote, stages of mourning, which is a well-meant kind of normative mapping, but which I think is increasingly recognized as a limited form of describing the range of possible experience. Um, I want to make it clear that I'm talking about a physical, bodily experience, not a thought, that is, not an intellectual generalization about time apparently having stopped for the person who continues living after the unexpected death of someone close to them. An extraordinary, vivid experience of no time, something that that deeply familiar cliche, time stopped, doesn't immediately reveal itself. And I'll speak too about why this state, this condition, is so resistant to being described, and therefore why there's no descriptive literature about it that I could find, which is why I myself was driven with a great deal of misgivings and hesitance to speak about it myself. But why living in this temporarily unusual condition does make it clear that our normal 
immersion, immersion in a mobile time is only one possible temporal condition among many. But what I'm going to say is only very tangentially a plea for more, quote, empathy, end quote. In fact, I have some degree of skepticism about the usefulness of the word empathy if it's taken to describe or to imply a kind of benevolent identification with someone who is bereaved, especially by a very sudden death. My own feeling is that empathy for the onlooker under such circumstances isn't really achievable, nor should it be. All it's really needed is some expression of recognition of the loss. And an old and perfectly good word for this recognition could simply be the word kindness. Kindness from those who haven't undergone a similar loss and solidarity between those who have. So maybe there could be a broader sense of the wildness, the uniqueness, the sheer weirdness, in short, the non-textbook-like range of, quote, strange feelings, unquote, that may grip the abruptly bereaved. I'll talk about just one of these, quote, unquote, strange feelings, that of a sense of arrested time and about why it's not narratable for as long as you're in its grip, which of course adds hugely to its strangeness and I think explains why, as I mentioned, it doesn't figure in the copious literature of bereavement. But even though dislocations of the usual experiences of time can systematically elude telling, I think they may find an analogy in some aspects of the poem, in some features of poetry. And so I'm making another detour then from the time of prose itself into the distinctive time of lyric poetry and the absence of straightforward chronological temporality in lyric. When someone very close to you has died suddenly and unexpectedly, it's likely that at least one benign person will tell you to reread Freud's Morning in Melancholia, but less prescriptive and more sympathetic than that particular essay is the older Freud's remark in his letter to a friend written after the death of his daughter Sophie. He says, all that we know that after such a loss, the acute state of mourning will subside. We also know that we'll remain inconsolable and will never find a substitute, no matter what may fill the gap. Even if it be filled completely, it nevertheless remains something else. And actually, says Freud, this is how it should be. It is the only way of perpetuating that love which we do not want to relinquish. And that's the end of the quotation. So the gap, even though it may be filled up, will still remain detectable. It stays as something else. It's noticeable precisely as a filled gap. 
which is as good as it gets. In other words, what's filled in isn't ever identical to what's been lost. It's that very action of replacing which can stay so prominent in our minds. And now I'm going to make what may sound to you like a strange leap. I'm going to suggest that the same happens with rhymed verse, with its paused and then resumed internal times. You stop, you repeat, you continue, you repeat slightly differently, you stop, you look back again, you go ahead. Much like a version of Samuel Beckett's famous, I can't go on, I'll go on, I can't go on, I'll go on, or his something is taking its course. But I'm thinking about a variant. Something is being carried on. The familiar, but then the differing in the next breath. Which is exactly what happens both with rhyme and in your own gradual reanimation, so to speak, after you've been very near to the death of someone you were close to. Nothing has changed, yet it all has. You are returned after your brush with another's death, a brush that seems for a while to have stopped you too. And you return differently. You return knowing more. The repeating sounds of rhymed words are close, but of course they're not identical. So in a rhyme, and also in a meter, in a repeated cadence, something can be guaranteed to return as a variation of the original. It's true to the nature of many returns after a detour, including your own return from your proximity to another's death, that you won't arrive at the very same place, as you yourself will not be the same. Something stays recognizable, Nevertheless, it's recognition as recognition, to know or to be known again, but because of the inevitable interval, to know or to be known somewhat differently. There's an inbuilt recognition of change, which can't be a replacement by the same thing, nor by a restoration of the lost object. Any rhyme carries a slight shift in its sound, but it stays distinct enough to preserve the trace of the original rhyming sound. Rhyme and cadence, in short, bring about our recognition of a familiar tone, but not of an identity. It's somewhat altered, but it's still familiar. Rhyme fills the gap, which a listening ear anticipates and fills it in with something close to the original, but slightly different. Rhyme offers a preserved outline of a sonic gap that will stay in the ear even after it's been filled in by another rhyme. Rhyme and rhythm keep the outline intact and they proffer to the gap something which does not, however, obliterate its true and necessary standing as a gap. This gap isn't any melancholic shortcoming it's needed for the prosody, the architecture of the poem, to work at all. Like Freud's letter, no matter what may fill the gap, 
even if it be filled completely, it nevertheless remains something else and actually this is how it should be. And then this movement through time of the poem needn't be linear. It may well be marked by oscillation, by a to and fro, rather than by some forward-leaning chronological drive. That is, the lyric poem both sanctions and enacts an experience of time which is not linear. In the same way that your own experience time in the immediate wake of someone's unexpected death isn't linear either. But that lack of the usual forward flow in your temporal perception is not, I'd argue, well understood if it's taken to be a pathology. And that comes back to my opening um, glancing remark about needing a toleration for strange feelings, for altered perceptions of time, especially of the kind that is so obstinately hard to characterize. Now, what I've just been saying may sound to you like a, a sort of a capricious comparison, a too light comparison between the workings of rhyme and the experience of living through another's death. Where you were very close to that person, where you loved that person. But actually, my guess is that rhyme may do the work of holding time together, making a chain of stitches in sound, which, although each stitch will be slightly different, can act together as a sonic link across time, and so can enact that sense of sequence which would otherwise have been mislaid when the writer's usual temporal flow has been cut by the experience of a death. I'll explain in a moment more about what I mean by such a cut in the habitual apprehension of the flow of time. First, I'll read a, a poem of mine, not for its content, but just so that you can hear the formal ballad-like design of it, which is very plain and simple and which links with my argument. And this is called Death Makes Dead Metaphor Revive. Death makes dead metaphor revive, turn stiffly, bright and strong, time that is felt as stopped, will freeze its to-fro, fro-to song I parrot under feldspar rock, sunk into chambered ice. Language, the spirit of the dead may mouth each utterance twice. Spirit as echo, clowns around in punning repartee, since each word overhears itself laid bare, clairaudiently. An orphic engine revs, but floods choked on its ardent weight. Disjointed anthems dip and bob down time's defrosted spate. Over its pools of greeny melt, the rearing ice will tilt to make rhyme chime again with time. I sound a curious lilt. So I wrote that with an ear to the kind of affect 
that swells up, not only from ballads, but also from 19th century hymn quatrains. I was wondering about the automated nature of the feeling that can shine through rhyme, that is, rhyme's own capacity, in effect, to generate a kind of feeling, or what we might call a hyphenated thinking feeling. There's an obvious anonymity about rhyme, that is, its sound resemblances aren't necessarily resemblances of meaning or sense. The sheer contingency of what word rhymes with what within a particular language is never far away. And yet rhyme is in the same breath, deeply personal in its indwelling in the listener, like a marriage of the material with the ideal. It's a happy and a curious accident of the English language that the word rhyme does indeed itself rhyme with the word time. And indeed that both of those words also rhyme with chime, a word which itself means a sonic repetition. And when the speaker of the poem I just read, Death Makes Dead Metaphor Revive, says, to make rhyme chime again with time, I sound a curious lilt. She has something specific in mind, in her mind, about the severance of time and its potential joining again by rhyme. I'll describe what I mean by such severance in a moment, but I want to make it clear that I'm not claiming some sort of therapeutics or ascribing a curative aspect to rhyme. It will hardly mend the split between the usual forward, the usual experience of a forwardly moving time and the person who finds herself caught at a standstill. All the memorial poems, which are both strongly metrical and rhymed, are what people seem quote-unquote, instinctively to turn to, especially when they're in search of what to read at a funeral. My own suggestion is not that there's a cure, and certainly not much of a consolation for loss, to be had in the formally structured poem. But, to use a slightly old-fashioned term, I do feel that such a poem could work as an emblem as a kind of sounding emblem. Emblematic of what? Of an experience of loss, I mean, as it's imperceptibly starting to alter its temporary state. Of a loss which is no longer quite paralyzed and at an eternal standstill. Of the fact that there is change that you have been changed yourself by your proximity to the death of an intimate, but there's also a return, a return which is not the same. There's a recognition, not of an identical replacement, but to something which recollects in its sound what had gone before, and it also anticipates what's to come. My tentative suggestion then is that these pulsations of resume time, of a returning experience after a state of frozen time, may be enacted emblematically 
by the ever-returning times of rhyme. And I'll try to bring this idea of alteration plus recognition closer to the lived experience of stop time. What do I mean by a severance of time? If you've lived it, as I'm sure some people will have, you will have experienced it. Otherwise, it's something like this. To outlive the sudden death of someone close to you makes it evident that your ordinary time, which had once flowed, had never been very much of a clear stream. That old kind of lived time had always been thick. It must have been another aspect of the flesh of the world. Now, though, after the death, your distinctive sensation of a newly stopped time, or perhaps better, a non-time, has blown away that old, unremarked thickness and has dropped you down in its landscape of brilliant clarity. Rather than being only a temporal swerve, your new state is a stepping outside of the entire sheltering sky of flowing temporality itself into a not unpleasant state of tremendous simplicity, of an easy candor and a bright emptiness. Perhaps yours could be almost a version of akinetopsia, that rare condition in which you mislay the perception of motion itself. Like the patient who found pouring a cup of tea difficult because, she said, the fluid, as it fell, appeared to be frozen like a glacier. It's a perception, in any event, as bodily immediate as your feeling of thirst. Your altered temporality, I want to stress again, isn't to do with any taking thought. Instead, it feels foundational to do with the entire nature of your cognition. A sudden, unexpected vanishing smashes through your habitual assumption that people will reappear. Someone who says, I keep expecting to hear his key in the door any moment now, isn't simply falling back on a cliché, or rather, the cliché, like most clichés, is founded on a great layer of wisdom. That speaker is issuing a factual report on his state. Once so ferociously shaken up, cognition can't readily regroup its forces with its old anticipation intact. Your entire stance is changed by an upheaval of that topography in which your old apprehension of the world once quietly moved. You may, in effect, go with the lost person into a kind of timeless time. This experience must be the time of the dead, or rather, it's as near as you can get to entering into that time or that non-time. So to speak, comes the quick qualification here. Your own changed intuition of time, so hard to describe aloud convincingly, is echoed in our stumbling language about the being of the dead. The very grammar of discussing a death falters. Even the plainest 
He died. If you look at it, it is a strange sentence, since there's no longer a human subject to sustain that he, while language has to go on behaving as if there is. What about the phrase, his body, once there's no longer any he to animate and own it? Such daily curios of expression are, nonetheless, readily shuffled along with. They're pragmatically workable. Far more linguistically intractable, though, is the effort to show the condition of a feeling of paralyzed time. For once there's no longer a feeling of sequence, once your sensation of time's flow has gone, and so narration itself cannot proceed. Any attempt at descriptive writing about this reaches an impasse. Normally, it could have relied on its own unfolding, but not so now. An experience of no time systematically militates against being recounted your condition is outside of narrative. The experience of this kind of atemporality undercuts, radically undercuts its own possibilities of articulation. It can't speak itself because the usual joints of syntax have been broken. Not because, as onlookers might most reasonably assume, you're too shocked to wish to write, or because you are, quote, in denial, unquote, but because once the movement of time is arrested for you, so do those customary befores, next, and afters that underpin narrating. A sentence has to slope forward into its own future, as had your former intuition of a naturally mobile time. In your old inclination towards the future, there was also something that had shaped your awareness of yourself. Both experience time and your being, in their mutual implication, had leant out towards the world. But now, your newly stopped time has been stripped of that directedness. So very little seems to have been published about the effects of a sudden death on the experiences of time of those left alive. A science which isn't surprising. Once you start to reflect on these linguistic blocks to telling, your will, your very will, to struggle to recount this violently novel state of timelessness gets sapped because you know that your most determined effort can't get through to others. Syntax itself is set against you here because it has to rely on conventional temporality to work at all. If time had once ushered you into language, now you discover the converse, that narrative language had sustained you in time. It's thens and it's next and it's afters had once unfolded themselves placidly. But now that time has abruptly gone away from you, your language of telling has left with it as well. 
So whatever happens to you once you're thrown outside of time's motion and you find yourself cut away from the familiar mutual implication of language with time, could you even say that now you too have stopped? But something still goes on. You walk about, you might even sleep a bit. You do your best to work. You get older. And yet, in essence, for a while, you have stopped. Your very interiority seems to have drained away so that you've become pure skin stretched out very tightly over vacancy. You abide. I'll move towards a conclusion by reading two stanzas, stanzas from a long sequence of mine called a part song. Because in the first of these, I was desperately trying to find a visual equivalent for this sense of arrested time, but it was a very frustrating effort for me. The extract is... Suspended in unsparing light, the sloping gull arrests its curl. The glassy sea is hardened waves. Its waters lean through shining air, yet never crash, but hold their arc, hung rigidly in glaucous ropes, muscled and gleaming. All that should flow is sealed, is poised in implacable stillness, joined in non-time and halted in free fall. And in the second short extract, I have a quick reflection on the impossible hope of such writing. The writing now would like to bring back the dead. It knows it won't. It says, it's all a resurrection song. Could it ever be got right? The dead would rush home, keen to press their chinos. The continuing possibility of invoking the no longer existing person in elegy does induce a curious linguistic quasi-resurrection. As an illusion of grammar, it has its linguistic reasons. Perhaps language, at least, does possess a belief in spirit. No wonder that the puzzles of lost animation or the dream of reanimation become a driving preoccupation among those left behind still alive. Those gibbering souls of Orphic myth might suggest that the scattering of the anima, the soul, is also a flight of syntax. And even the most secular mind, as my own is, will find it hard to conceive of a death without some kind of continuation as if in some agnostic's version of a released soul. No subject can easily be conceived as extinguished because language itself won't sustain that thought.
the language's trajectory is always, unfortunately so, to lean forward into life, to shove it along, and to propel the dead vigorously onward among the living. But wherever it is in this case, the literature that deals closely with this strange arresting of time. The only note that I found in my own searches, and it's a note that I will conclude with, is, and this won't surprise you, a piece by Emily Dickinson, writing in about 1864. And Emily Dickinson says this, I felt a cleaving in my mind as if my brain had split. I tried to match it, seam by seam, but could not make them fit. The thought behind I strove to join unto the thought before, but sequence raveled out of sound like balls upon a floor. 